Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. G'day, JL. Um, all the talk in the squad is about uh, young Cameron Green being picked in these white ball squads. What, what are you expecting to see from him? Well, he's a very good player. Uh, all the English guys used to say, oh, you, you're in Australia, you, you've got this great youth policy, you always pick these really good young players. You know, and they talk about Damian Martin or Ricky Ponting, Michael Clark, but... What I kept saying, it's not a youth policy. You just pick the guys who are playing the best cricket. I mean, Cameron Green's got, albeit in Sheffield Shield cricket, for 400s in his last, I don't know, whatever it is, six or seven Shield games, I think. So he's a terrific young player. Um, he comes into this squad specifically, like Moses and Reeks, specifically as a replacement for Mitch Marsh as a medium pace all-rounder. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your co-host, Menas. Joining me is Paul, the summer game, Dennett. And, uh, Paul, I am absolutely thrilled at the moment because my weekend was chock full of watching cricket. It was wall-to-wall cricket. I got to Sunday night and realised I'd barely spoken a word to my family. (laughs) I'd barely watched anything that wasn't a cricket ball being bowled at a batter. It was a sensational weekend full of IPL, Sheffield Shield cricket and WBBL. Loved every minute of it. How are you going? I'm going really well. Watched a fair bit of cricket. I don't think I was quite in your level, but I'm working towards it. When we see at the height of summer, then we'll see the real the real class of cricket watching come out. I think I might <laughs> I might have you there. But one of the great moments that any time I, I get to talk about 1923 on this podcast, as you know, I'm a man of the modern times. But for Pekovsky and Harris to break the Victorian opening partnership record and to knock out Maine and Ponsford from 1923, what a wonderful occurrence. 
Yeah, it was amazing. And we're going to get into all of the Sheffield Shield and statistical highlights of that partnership in the headlines. So in today's episode of Cricket Unfiltered, we have all the headlines. Then we have a special guest. We are joined by Dan Norcross from the BBC, one of my favourite English cricket commentators. So thrilled that he's on the show. And then we're going to bring it on home with Can't Let It Go. All right, let's get straight into the headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcasts. And uh, as you heard at the top of the show, Justin Langer was talking about the Australian white ball squads that have been announced that are going to take on India in three T20s and three 50-over games. The big inclusion is Cameron Green, who's been called into the squad. Also, Moses Enriquez has been called up and uh, Daniel Sams retains his spot. What jumped out at you from the squad, Paul? I suppose the fact that, again, Nathan Lyon um, isn't in there. It's a little bit puzzling to me, given that we have got those massive tournaments in the next coming, in the upcoming years that are all going to be in India, where spin is going to, to feature heavily. I, I expect that he's pretty, pretty disappointed at not being picked. I imagine he is. Langer and Hones both gave the reason that basically Zampa and Agar are still ahead of Lyon in the white ball formats, and therefore there just wasn't room for him. So, yeah, from that squad, uh, so Cameron Green and Moses Henriquez both come in to sort of replace Mitch Marsh. And the Australian coach, Justin Langer, said they're looking at getting more bowling options for Aaron Finch. He likes to be able to divide that fifth bowler up in, especially one-day cricket, between a few different bowlers. So, you could have Maxwell, uh, Henriquez... Uh, or Green taking a few overs to fill up those um, spots. But are we seeing the sort of very beginnings of what's going to be an amazing international career for Cameron Green? I certainly hope so. The huge talk that's been in the last few days, um, you always wonder whether someone will live up to the hype. But at this stage, to be only 21, to have a batting average of almost 50 and a bowling average of about 21 is quite incredible, albeit not on an enormous amount of matches. So who knows where that will... It's hard to see him maintaining that level because those figures are absolutely you know, extraordinary. But for Greg Chappell to say he's the best young batsman he's seen since Ricky Ponting, huge praise. It's just exciting. Let's see where it goes. And I think every cricket lover gets very excited when there's a young player with, with tremendous talent who's really starting to blossom. Yes, and uh, when these white ball squads were announced and Cameron Green was, was called up, uh, it did uh, mean there was a lot of talk and questioning of Hones and uh, Langer about whether Green's inclusion is putting pressure on players like Matt Wade or Travis Head in, in the test squad. And, and what they both re- reiterated, and right again, Manners, because I said it in the last podcast, was that they're pretty happy with the test lineup. And, and I would actually say, and we'll, we'll get to it, but I would say Burns is probably the one under the most pressure from someone like Pekofsky. I would think Green's quite far away from starting that first test. I think a lot would have to happen for Green to start against India. So at this stage, I think uh, Hones and Lang are pretty happy with the test team. Yeah, I've got two views on that. One, I can see why they would be. And I, I think that Head and Wade in the middle order are very, very good players. But I, I have a slight issue with the, the notion that they are looking at the current side and sort of saying, who can we, who do we need to replace from that? I, I would much prefer it if they went from first principles each time and just said, we are going to pick the best 11 players 
to win this test match for us. If Cameron Green is in that 11, then he's in the side. And we'll then work out where the, where the collateral damage is in terms of who misses out, rather than saying, well, we're happy with everyone, so therefore we can't make a change. It's that sort of thinking that kept Adam Gilchrist out of the side for years when as good a player, as wonderful a player as Ian Healy was... I think that Gilchrist should have been in the side sort of three years before. And there are other examples of it as well. Matthew Hayden was kept out of the side for a while from that, from that same logic. I think you pick your best 11 without sort of um, worrying about who, too much who's the incumbents, who are the incumbents. My only counter to that is that if you're dropping players after they've done well, it sort of breeds a culture where players are always looking over their shoulder and, and worried if they're going to get the axe when they don't deserve it. But quite practically, what it's done is that those first two tests against India are vital for a player like Wade and a player like Head, that if they don't score, uh, there's many viable options to come into the middle order. I mean, two years ago when India, India were here and Smith and Warner were banned, we were scratching our heads wondering... Who could bat for Australia at test level? Now, there's three or four players outside the top, test top six who you could squeeze in there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an amazing difference in two years. Uh, and obviously, with the return of, of Smith and Warner makes part of that and the, and the rise of Labashain as well. But look, I still think that even if that's the case, if it does bring about a culture of looking over your shoulder, then I don't think that's, the, that's an issue. The issue is you've just got to pick the best 11 to win the side. I mean, to take that to its logical extension... Are you saying that you'd say, well, I think this is my best 11, but I don't want to generate a, a culture that I'm not overly happy with, so I'm going to pick an inferior side to that. You lose the test match by 10 runs, you'd feel pretty stupid, wouldn't you? Yeah, I don't think it's really the way you've painted the pitch there. I mean, you don't know how someone's going to do at test level. Cameron Green, he could struggle at test level. And, and you know, if you're dropping him for someone like um, Travis Head, who's averaged over 40 with the bat, uh, in the middle order, I, I think you can actually breed a, a poor culture where people feel like their their performances at test match level aren't valued. And and we've seen that in the past with the Aussie team. When you, you drop players after one or two games, it just breeds this culture where performances are almost stifled by the anxiety. Yeah, I know what you're, what you're saying, but by that same logic, if, if young Braddon was around now, he wouldn't get in the side because you don't want to drop weight or head. I'm not saying that um, I would necessarily pick... Cameron Green. It's all about timing, though. I mean, you can say that, but it's all about timing. I mean, as you just have to wait till there's a get someone runs out of form and then you pick them. Well, that, no, I disagree. You, you have to pick your best side. Well, I guess then it becomes a matter of opinion. Is your best side someone like Cameron Green, who's completely unproven at test level, or you know, you're picking players that have been there, done that, and performed well? Well, then to look at it a different way, um, you mentioned as well that. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. No, but um. You mentioned that Burns is under pressure, and I'd agree with that. Then why not bring Cameron Green in, drop Burns, and rejig the batting order? Uh, if, if 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 you think that Green is um, worthy of being in there, this I, is a trap, isn't it? You want to talk about batting orders? No, no, no. I don't want to talk. I just think that it's something that they never consider. They just look at the opening two as though they are their own little unit. Yet when you've opened, when when they promoted Watson to open or David Boone to open or um, Justin Langer himself to open or Usman Kawaja when he's had a chance, they've played just as well as they'd always done. I think that Manus Labuschagne could open. I think that Travis Head could open. If Green or Burns are your choices, and just I know that for some people that sounds crazy, but do you want someone who's averaging 50 and in form and can bowl versus someone who's not doing so well, who may well come good and, and do really well? I, I think that the batting order shouldn't stop you making that choice. I'm going to regret saying this, but 
I do think Marnus could open with Warner and it would be a good partnership. I don't like head opening. I don't like Wade opening. But Marnus and Warner with Smith at three, that's a pretty strong top order and uh, it could work. So it's not as crazy as some of the suggestions oh, that you've good. thrown out there in the past. I'm really pleased. I was <laughs> expecting a, um, a real level of abuse from you, but you've actually kind of half agreed with me. I'll take that. Good, good. Now, um, as I said, Justin Langer spoke to the media, and, and we have voiced our concerns on this podcast about the Australian teams and Cricket Australia's approach to the Black Lives Matter movement. And in the last week, I have got an official position from Cricket Australia on the WBBL players taking a knee, and this is Cricket Australia's statement. The Rebel Women's Big Bash League actively promotes diversity and inclusion and stands against any form of discrimination on the basis of race, sex, sexual orientation or disability. Players from each club took part in First Nation acknowledgements activities on the opening weekend of Rebel WBBL 06, while a number of other players in their clubs took a knee in support of the global Black Lives Matter. We support and applaud our players expressing their beliefs and standing alongside members of the community impacted by discrimination. That's been pretty consistent from CA sort of giving relatively no guidance, but I thought I wanted to play here what Langer said when he was asked by a reporter uh, what he thought about players taking a knee. So have a listen. Well, I'm glad you asked the question because I was actually with an Aboriginal elder last night and one of my follow-up questions to him today is, and, and I've asked this, Kate, we actually had a long conversation last night about it, and I want to understand the history of personally of taking a knee. Now, we talk about the barefoot circles. We've talked about a number of things, different initiatives or ways of representing this, but I really want to know the significance of that and if that's the best way to represent it. And I, and I want to hear it from... From our, I guess our Aboriginal elders. I want to hear it from people who have the who have experienced racial discrimination. Well, I haven't, so I want to hear it from Peter and what the best way forward is, mate. So, um, as I said to Pete, I said to you guys a little while ago, we're really aware of it. It's a it's a very important uh, issue in our society at the moment, and we want to make sure we do it and represent it with great respect and dignity and whether it's taking a knee or whether it's, um, you know, we'll come up with that in the next little bit. And, uh, but we've certainly got, it's certainly front of mind at the moment. So Paul, what are your thoughts on Justin Langer's comments there? I think that it's good that he's talking to Aboriginal elders. He's right. He hasn't, well, he hasn't experienced it. It's hard for us. We've never experienced it either. But I, I still have an overarching viewpoint that Cricket Australia, it would have been nice if they had said we are going to take a knee and that's the viewpoint that I would have had. Ultimately, if the Australian side do decide to take a knee and it's because of the, the background work that Justin Langer has done, then I'll, I'll applaud that. I agree with what you said, Paul. I just feel that it's a little bit reductive and it sort of plays into sort of the typical Australian mindset of we only see what's in front of us and what's in our backyard. This issue, this issue is much bigger than uh, the way we've treated the Aboriginal people. It's, it's a much broader issue and uh, I just find it strange that we're not showing the sort of solidarity that other sports leagues are. But we've said that before. Now moving on to the Sheffield Shield. Well, Paul, you mentioned it at the top of the show. Pekoski and Harris put on... Just 486, uh, smashing 
my favourite ever Shield moment out of the record books. I, I had the War Brothers highest ever Shield partnership as 464 as my favourite ever moment in Shield cricket gone from the top spot. So just let's go through the stats. What I'd like to do, and I'm not going to do it, but there's a movie about the uh, breaking of the four-minute mile. Uh, Roger Bannister, 1954, went out there and broke the four-minute mile. And the night before, they show the ground announcer in the bathtub practicing how he could take over the moment. And he was practicing how he was going to announce it. And he was, and he ended up doing it this way, at least in the movie, that when he won, everyone just wanted to hear, and he's broken the four-minute mile. Mm-hmm. Instead, he said, the winner is R. Bannister in a time that is a new Oxford record, a new Oxford and Cambridge record, a new British universities record. He went on and on and on and on. Finally, he said the thing, and he said, and in a time of three minutes and the crowd went crazy. I would like to start by saying that this is a new record for games at Glenelg. (laughs) (laughs) It's a new record for the first wicket from Victoria versus South Australia in Glenelg. It's a new hub record. Yeah, exactly. But instead, let's just cut to the chase. It is a new Sheffield Shield record for all partnerships of all time, a competition that began in 1892-93. This is the number one. It's the second highest first-class partnership in Australia because there was that uh, amazing game a few years ago when Ryan Carter and Aaron Finch put on 503 for a Cricket Australia 11 against um, New Zealand. I was gunning for that one to be overtaken. Yeah. This one would, would have been good to overtake that. But, yeah, it's, it's number two in terms of Australian first-class wickets, uh, Australian first-class performances altogether. Ryan Curtis, who's given up cricket, just lazily scored the highest ever first-class partnership in Australia and just gave up. <laughs> and it's also the 19th highest partnership of all time in first-class cricket, uh, which given that um, first-class cricket, you know how storied the history is when no one can actually agree when it began. But roughly, they reckon it's about a quarter of a millennium that we've been playing first-class cricket. 60,000 matches. So to be number 19 is pretty cool. Although they're a long way off the record. Sangakara and Jay Warden are put on 624 at the, at the SSC in, in Colombo in, against South Africa. So that's the, the, the two biggies. That, um, and the one that I said that it knocked off uh, from 1923, Maine and Ponsford, Victoria versus Queensland, which wasn't the Sheffield Shield either because that was before Queensland were actually even in the Sheffield Shield, but it was a first-class game. Yeah, so Pekoski and Harris, just phenomenal stuff. Pekoski now is um, putting pressure on, you would say, Joe Burns for that test spot. Marcus Harris as well started the season off in sterling fashion. Um, but they weren't actually able to get the win in that game. They weren't able to bowl out um, South Australia. No, they weren't. But uh, again, South Australia not making the greatest start to, to the season. And just, I just got thinking about South Australian cricket history and had a look. And any South Australian listeners out there, please correct me if I've got this wrong. And I may well have. But Menas, here's the trivia question for you. Who was the last South Australian-born seamer to take 100 test wickets? Well, Jason Gillespie. Born in Sydney. Or born and grew up through his first 10 years in Sydney. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Another New South Welshman has gone on to do better for other states. And a Clary Grimmett? Born in New Zealand. Uh, okay, <laughs> who is it? I think those are the two, though. The one before that, George Giffen, who played in 1881 to 1896, who took 103 test wickets. All-rounder as well. If I've got that wrong and if someone was born in South Australia that I didn't get, please send correspondence through. But otherwise, uh, come on, South Australia, let's get some fast bowlers out of, out of you. 
Well, they've got Jason Gillespie as their coach now, so hopefully they'll turn things around. Interesting for the test summer, Travis Head made his second century um, of the Shield season so far, 151. So that's two big tons for the incumbent test player. It's very exciting. I mean, we're talking about Smith Warner being back, and that's a big thing for us two years ago against India. We didn't have them. Labashane is nothing like the player he was two years ago. He's now, you know, right at the top of the tree. The way Head's going, I'm getting more and more excited. Like, he, he's just starting to really build into a player of substance. And, wow, if we could get a fourth player at that kind of level, we're just unstoppable. Well, we've already got Wade at that level, so to be a fifth player. Other stuff from the Shield round, New South Wales beat Queensland by one wicket. It was a terrifically exciting conclusion on the fourth afternoon. Uh, with the scores level, nine wickets down, we thought we might see a tie. In that game, Marnus. Made 117, his second century of the summer. It was an intriguing battle between him, Lyon and Stark. Lyon and Stark were really trying to get under the Aussie number three skin and it worked You because in the second innings, Marnus was out for a duck and he was given a nice little send-off there by Copeland when he left. For the test side, Burns made 29 and a duck in the second inning, so he would probably want to put some runs together. The story of the game, though, is Trent Copeland, the ageing veteran, 5 for 17 off 18 overs, an incredible spell from the New South Wales speedster, and uh, he was the difference between those two sides because up until that point it looked like it was going to be probably a draw, but then Copeland ran through the top order. He took wickets 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, the top five players. That's um, pretty impressive. And, yeah, it was good to see Stark and um, and Labashain really having a bit of a battle, a couple of uh, really nasty bounces from Stark, one that Labashain wore, one that he kind of top-edged. Uh, Stark sort of almost threatened him for a warning from Mancad. There was, um, you know, it's it's one of the crazy things about Australia. I suppose it happens in other countries as well, but th- these guys who for the rest of the summer are going to be on the same side and their loyalty to each other will be unquestioned, really absolutely going hard at it. It was, um, It's pretty exciting to see. It was, and uh, that was a very good game. And then in the other game, Western Australia took on Tasmania, and it was another draw. It was a seesawing affair. Uh, but I'm hearing rumours that, Sean Marsh has been given a boost by um, a panellist on the show, Paul Dennett, saying that they should just pick the leading run scorers. They just pick the guys scoring runs. And Sean Marsh has heard this, and he's, he's made another 100, 115, and 88 in the second innings. He's daring the selectors to be picked <laughs> again. And then Matthew Wade made 83 for Tasmania, so he's in form. And he made 83 and then another 50 not out. The unfortunate thing is any other round, everyone will be talking about Whiteman and Bancroft opening up and putting 234 on uh, for the opening wicket. Bangers scoring 104, Whiteman 118, but it, it's, all, it's under half of what Harrison Pekoski did. Yeah, and I've done a bit of uh, just checking with the numbers. So far this Sheffield Shield, it's 41.7 runs per wicket that the sides are averaging. Throughout history, it's been more like 31 or 32. So it's not as though they're flat tracks, but they're... The, the runs scored, uh, I suppose wickets taken are, are really, really um, impressive. Runs scored are always impressive, but there, there have been a few. And with Marsh, I think my position on Sean Marsh is almost crazy, but it's basically I would not pick him in the Australian side. I wouldn't have picked him in the Australian side many, many times. But I object to the fact that they have sort of ruled a line through him. I say, if he's good enough, pick him. And if you say if he should be in the best 11, pick him. Yeah, but I don't think you should be. But I'm saying don't have an artificial line through his name. If he if he keeps on scoring runs, there would come a point. Well, you've inspired him because he's he's obviously 
taken this on board and thought there's no artificial <laughs> line through my name. I'm going to keep piling on the runs and put the pressure on my old mate Justin Langer to pick me. All right, moving on to the Big Bash, the Men's Big Bash League. Steve Smith and the other Aussie stars have all but confirmed that a Big Bash stint is highly unlikely for them. They've, they've looked at their calendars, and if all the tours sort of go ahead as planned, then the, the Aussie stars, including Smith, will need a gap at the end of, say, the Indian Test Series to sort of see their families before they were to go on tour to somewhere like South Africa if that goes ahead. Uh, or they're talking about playing that in a neutral venue. I guess the only thing that could sort of change that is if the tours at the end of summer were cancelled, uh, then maybe they would consider playing in the Big Bash because they'd, they'd get a big break after. Yeah, and it makes sense that that's what they're doing. And I, I do fall back on Peter Lawler's point that he's, he's made a, a couple of times that uh, it must be a little bit galling for Channel 7 and Fox Sports to be seeing um, Pat Cummins tearing into Steve Smith in the IPL at the moment and knowing that they you know they're not going to be able to get that in in the big bash in their own in their own tournament in, in a few weeks time but I think in this crazy year um, let, let's see what happens next year all right um, our final headline we've got some commentary news from Ben Horn at the Daily Telegraph so Harsha Bogle will be commentating on the upcoming test series for Fox, but he'll be doing it from a studio in Mumbai. So we're going to have you know a couple of commentators at the ground and then Harsha being piped in from Mumbai. What do you think? Yeah, I'm happy with that. Uh, normally I only – I cannot stand it when a commentator is not at the ground, but with the pandemic I think that makes sense. Uh, I think the, the modern technology will allow that to be done pretty seamlessly. And I just hope that um, we don't ever get to the point when in a post-pandemic world it's considered the norm for commentators to not be at the ground because often I think that they they end up getting the mix wrong between the sound effects of the ground and, and the commentary team and you can just feel a little bit artificial. Uh, so I'd always prefer the commentators to be at the ground, but under the current circumstances, I think this is absolutely fine. Yeah, I agree on that one. And Michael Vaughan is going to be staying in England with his family, a sensible decision there. Um, with England about to go into another lockdown, he doesn't want to leave his family, so he won't be coming. I'll miss Vaughan's cheekiness on air this summer. I really, what I like most about Michael Vaughan was when I listen to the, the BBC podcast after a day's play, and he's, he gives his thoughts on the day. I often don't agree with him necessarily, but I, I just find uh, he, he touches on all the right topics, and I think he's a very interesting analyst of the game, better than as a commentator. Yeah, I like all of it from Vaughan. I think he's good fun, knows what he's talking about. Alison Mitchell and Isha Gua are both coming out. They've confirmed they will make the trek and they will quarantine before the summer. Adam Gilchrist and Mike Hussey are going to be on the road for months, so they're going to leave Western Australia before the White Ball Internationals and then they probably won't be allowed back into WA until after the, the summer of cricket is over. So it's going to be an unusual summer in the commentary box, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. No, I can't wait. I think it's... Um I think it could be a real bumper summer as long as... Um, yeah, I mean more for the cricket than the commentary, but I... Yeah, 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 but um, yeah. Uh, it's great. Australia and India test series for a while. It looked like it mightn't happen. Uh, if it does happen and, and both sides are pretty much at full strength, it, it could be one of the best series we've ever seen. All right, that is the Cricket Headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcasts. We're going to take a quick break and then we are going to be back with Dan Norcross from the BBC. I just want to remind you, if you've got time... Go out there and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Oz Cricket Pod. That's A U S Cricket Pod. 
Uh, there's behind the scenes videos. There's all sorts of stuff up there. So go and uh, follow us on social media. All right, coming up in a moment, Dan Norcross. Welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered Podcast. I'm Menas. I'm with Paul. And now we have a special guest joining us all the way from the UK. And regular listeners to the show will know I'm not usually too kind to English people, but Dan Norcross is in one of my top five English commentators. He's one of my favourite cricket pundits. I think you've been doing podcasts for years and years, Dan. So it's great to finally have you on Cricket Unfiltered. Welcome. Oh, it's a joy. It's a joy to watch you. It's, I, I'm, I'm really, we're doing this on Zoom and it's great to see you've got a logo and everything. This is just, and brilliant microphones. And I'm just doing this on my bed through a manky laptop. <laughs> well, that's how you started your um, commentary, isn't it? Test match sofa, sort of on your uh, couch with a few pints, commentating on the cricket. And now you're doing it for BBC. Yeah, it's been an unusual journey, hasn't it? I mean, it was slightly more than a few pints. <laughs> So how, how did how did you go then from doing it on your sofa to the BBC bringing you in? I mean, what was who called you a producer or did they just like your style? Just before that, sorry, one one question before we get to that. Did you uh, how did the BBC react to what you guys were doing? Did you get threats of uh, legal action and and you know you, you really upset the apple cart, didn't you? Yeah, you had a couple of horses' heads in the bed, that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was. Uh, um, yeah, I'm not going to pretend it was fun. Um, it, the first few years were great when we were doing it completely independently. So I've got to kind of go back a little bit to 2011, end of 2011. It was becoming increasingly difficult to fund it using just sponsorship and a bit of advertising because there are a lot of people and you've got to hire a studio. And we were doing 180 days commentary a year. So, you know, I I couldn't work. There was no way I could have a proper job. So it wasn't sustaining itself. So I looked for investment and the cricketer magazine bought test Mat sofa and then hired us and me especially to run the program. And we kind of maintained the same kind of style, but now we were backed by a bigger player, you know, somebody mm-hmm. that was in the establishment. And so we came to the attention then of the authorities slightly more um, uh, profoundly where before they were able to kind of ignore us. Um, they got to the point when journalists stopped coming on because they were going to struggle to get accreditation. Um, the Indian authorities uh, didn't allow Lawrence Booth, the editor of Wisdom, to be on on the show from India, uh, which so we were being sort of stifled by um, the way the authorities denied access, basically. Mm-hmm. So they denied access to our contributors, so they didn't want to come on, understandably, because they had their own livelihoods to be concerned about. Um, and that meant that the program itself started to suffer. Um, and so it was, it, I, I started to find it less enjoyable because um, the BBC weren't happy with what we were doing. The English Cricket Board weren't happy with what we were doing. One of the members of the English Cricket Board described me as the worst thing to have happened to cricket in this country. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow. That's a, I thought I was just doing a fan-based commentary service. It turns out I'm, I'm kind of evil. But, um, uh, so that was, that was quite a bitter pill to swallow. Um, I hadn't got into it really to have a fight with anyone. I'd got into it very naively thinking, like I said before, access to all. Everyone should have access to cricket regardless. And we should cut across these commercial considerations. Um, 
But of course, cricket is a commercial enterprise, isn't it? So uh, I think I was naive and I didn't really, you know, see what, what we were doing. Um, and then it just became, uh, the, the fun went out of it for me, really, because of this and because there was a sort of target on my head. So uh, the 2013-14 Ashes series, which was pretty tough if you were an England fan. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's going to kill any broadcast regardless, any English-based yeah, yeah. broadcast. <laughs> it's, it's, yes, and it's broadcasters. Because <laughs> don't forget, we were doing it through the night. So, you know, we'd start at 11 o'clock at night our time and then I'd finish about 8 o'clock because we'd do like interviews and 8 o'clock in the morning interviews with... Mitchell Johnson skittled us again. It's 4-0. <laughs> yeah, and he's always exactly the same way as well. Oh, look, here's Brad Haddon. He's going to get dropped on 10 and score a really <laughs> annoying 100, you know. Uh, and, and, and here's Johnson. He, or Ryan Harris. I mean, Ryan Harris, for me, was a bowler of that series. He, he bowled the best ball I've ever seen in cook. my life. Jeez. I mean, that's twisted blood, that ball. That is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. I've watched that over and over and over again. Me too. I've watched it every few months just to sort of feel good about myself. You should. I mean, whilst I, I am an England fan, but I do, you know, I do like cricket. So, you know, I can, I can appreciate good cricket. Um, so anyway, I, I realised that the, the kind of torment of it, and I was working really hard, and I'm not a man who is, I wasn't built for hard work. You know, I'm, 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 I'm a pretty lazy kind of guy. So when I realised that I was actually, you know, kind of working 14-hour days and getting ill and watching England lose constantly, and not only were people not appreciating it, they were telling me that I was worse than Alan Stanford, who had, <laughs> <laughs> who had humiliated English cricket in 2008. I kind of thought, wow. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I want to be part of this venture anymore. So I resigned from Test Match Sofa um, after the one-day series in January of 2014 uh, I, I told the cricketer that I couldn't do it anymore uh, but I I sort of I did it not in high dudgeon but in exhaustion and I thought about three or four weeks later you know I really love commentating on cricket am I never going to do it again so I just I think sort of madly speculatively sent an email to Adam Mountford who's the producer of Test Match Special and it, and it said something along the lines of uh, dear Adam, I imagine I am the last person to, <laughs> to hear from, <laughs> uh, given all that's gone on over the last few years. And, you know, some some pretty hard, vicious things had gone on from both sides, you've got to say, you know, because the fans of Test Match Sofa were militant and thought that they were standing up for freedom of speech. And the fans of Test Match Special thought that we were terrible oiks who were debasing cricket. And uh, much like it is now, basically, entirely polarised, no, no great areas, everything <laughs> utterly extreme. And so uh, I, I said, I know it sounds weird, but is there any chance you might maybe give me a go on a county game? And I love Adam dearly. I, I've worked with him a lot now in the last six years. Um, but one of the things he doesn't do is necessarily reply to your email within two minutes. He's a busy man, probably. But on this occasion, the, the first and last time he's ever done it, he... <laughs> He replied in two minutes and said, yeah, do you fancy doing uh, something like May the 18th, uh, Surrey v. Gloucester at the Oval? And uh, I just, uh, yeah, I, I didn't exactly break down in tears, but I, I thought, oh my God, yes. And crazily enough, I, could, I was so excited to do a county cricket game for the BBC. I instantly started imagining, you know, 
20 years hence being on desert island discs and talking about my favorite songs <laughs> and maybe <they're> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well you know when i started my journey of having a national treasure it was uh, <laughs> that's exactly but, what i'd do as well <laughs> i've done it many God. times <laughs> well it, it, it's best i think to dream your way through life because life doesn't always you know give you what you want so you might as well um, so what about that first time though you'll put on a a test match roster to commentate can i take you back to the because i would i want to give you two things that came before a men's test match because people always think that that is the moment the men's test match but on the bbc they actually because we've got the I didn't say men. No, I know you didn't. No, I know you didn't. I know, I know, I know. But a lot of people do kind of think that that is the moment when you're, you're going to like weep. But actually, the moment I, it really hit home was the men's ODI. And it's not the women's test match that I did. I did a women's test match in that self-same season against India at Wormsley. But brilliant as it was, and you hear the theme tune in your ear and you think, wow, I'm on test match special. You do know because you're in this kind of, it's a lovely ground, Wormsley, but it's not tooled up. You don't have TVs. You don't yeah. have a big crowd. You don't have all the, the pizzazz. So you feel proud that you're doing it and you're excited, but that's not the moment when you get terrified. When I got terrified was my first men's one-day international, which was the following season against Australia at Old Trafford. It was September. And because that is when like the sky cameras are there, Yep. And, you know, you've got Michael Holding walking back and forth and Ian Botham and David Gower. And you go into your own box and it's a really lovely commentary box at Old Trafford. And there's Michael Vaughan and Graham Swan and, you know, Jonathan Agnew, of course. And all these people that you've known and been listening to for years. And you've got this huge crowd of like 20,000 people and they're in your headphones. And then you sit down and you're about to say your first words. At that point, I thought, oh, my God, I'm a terrible imposter. This is dreadful. I've got to jump out the window. I, I, got, I just got to, I just got to, I got to, no, I can't do this. <laughs> and uh, as luck would have it, the, when I came on, I was sat next to Emily Rainford-Brent. Adam, our producer, is very sensitive in this way. So he, he helps your, your progression. And he put me on with someone I was very comfortable with because I'd worked with her in women's matches a lot. And uh, as I sat down, a wicket had just fallen and Owen Morgan was coming out to bat. And on Test Match Sofa, we had always referred to EOI and Morgan, the notorious Irish Val thief, <laughs> because, you know, his, no one spells a name like that. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> and it's a, you know, it's a puerile joke. But weirdly... Uh, I just reached for it because it was the first thing that, that has happened. <laughs> I said, I walk out to the crease is the notorious Irish Val thief, EOI and Morgan. And then I realized that actually cricket commentary is just like song, really. It's just like poetry and song. And once you've, once you've attached yourself to the rhythm, this is going to sound really pretentious now, guys. So uh, <laughs> forgive me, but cricket commentary is like oral poetry. It's like Homer. If you've ever read the Odyssey and the Iliad, basically lots of it is him saying the same things. You know, when rosy-fingered dawn arose, they plied the brown, briny sea with their oars, you know. And similarly, you say, and coming in from the pavilion end is the, is, is the ruffled-browed Mitchell Johnson with the screams of his mother ringing in his ears <laughs> as he hurtles away, trying to take the wickets of hapless Englishmen, uh, left arm over the wicket, 
to a left-handed cook, you know, and, and these are just rhythms. So once you start the rhythm and you start the song, then you realize that you're not exposed and alone and scared and frightened anymore. You're just doing what you've been doing for the last five years. And I've been doing, like I said, 180 days commentary a year at various points on Test Match Sofa. So I was much luckier than most broadcasters who come in uh, because they have to learn on their feet. Whereas I kind of developed all the rhythms and all the songs and, and the sound for, for the, all those years sat in a, on a sofa getting smashed with my mates. So, um, yeah, I was terrified, uh, but I was excited. But you're right. I mean, when you win your first test match cap, that is a different kind of thing that happens then because as cricket fans, we pay lip service to the fact that we like white ball cricket. Yeah, 50 over cricket's got better. And you know, T20's great. It's great for the kids. Yeah, entry drug, all good. And we all, we sort of, we sort of believe it. But still, the most important thing in life is to get a test cap, isn't it? Yep. So when you commentate a test match, that's when you get kind of like slightly teary. Uh, but you're brought rapidly back down to earth because Twitter will do that to you. So <laughs> you, you lie in the, in the hotel bedroom thinking, God, Daniel, you wanted to be a TMS commentator all your life. And you're reading these lovely messages from friends and people who listen to TMS say, you know, well does really lovely to hear you. Yeah, well, you know, you sound right at home. And then and you're getting all fluffed up and pre-apic <laughs> and think I'm the bloody best. And then of course you get the one that says, Dear Mr. Norcross, please stop being on Test Bat Sofa. You have destroyed my favorite program. You are the worst thing to have happened to it in all the years I've been listening. <laughs> so you then reply tentatively, um, how long have you been listening gerald <laughs> since 1981 <laughs> <You're the worst> <laughs> <ever>. <laughs> you think blimey <laughs> away from the fans though you, you said that day where there's holding and all these stars walking around i mean what was it like what was the reception like from you know the sort of established bbc commentators that this sort of crazy man from test match sofas just come in have you received the immortal words from Ian Botham of how many test wickets did you take? <laughs> I haven't dared enter an argument with Ian Botham because I know he would say that. And then <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'd be able to control myself really <laughs> as I fire a barrage of philosophical logic back at him. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's a very good question. And the answer to it is um, not very salacious. I'm afraid is that everybody Everybody, with the exception of Jeffrey Boycott, and we'll come to him in a minute, was... Have you got my notes there? Because Boycott's <laughs> on the list. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to give you a full answer to Boycott because, you know, he, he deserves a full answer because wow. it's, not, it's not exactly as you, as you might imagine, I might say, but um, everybody was really welcoming. What is extraordinary about Test Match Special to me, and I think this is the influence of the producer, and... I would say that, wouldn't I? Just in case he's listening, but no, quite genuinely. <laughs> Hello, Adam. Um, Adam, uh, he he has created this really wonderful atmosphere to work in, in which people genuinely nurture each other. Because obviously, a broadcast doesn't sound good if if somebody is feeling uncomfortable. You have to create an atmosphere where people are comfortable. So Ali Mitchell was the first person to hand to me, and she had sent me a congratulatory message, like a day or two before saying, you know, welcome aboard. It's great to have you. And then Ebony was on with me, as I said, who was a, who was a very calming and relaxing influence. Graham Swan and Michael Vaughan 
they weren't haughty in any way. They were like, you know, they, they just treated me like I was another broadcaster. The, the other guys who do ball by ball, and bear in mind that, you know, the men and women who do that, there aren't very many of us. So mm. any new body who turns up is a threat to the amount of work you're going to get. You know, it's yeah. a, I'm afraid the numbers game, it's, it's, it's brutal. You know, there's only three English people on each broadcast normally because we have one overseas commentator. So you yeah. think a national match always got Jim Maxwell and then three others and one of them's Aggers. So there's only two slots available. So if anybody turns up wanting to do it uh, and is doing it, then you sort of think, oh, if he's any good, it's less work for me. But actually, exactly. they, didn't, they didn't behave like that at all. They were really welcoming. They were really lovely. They were prepared. You know, I sat down with Aggers many times and said, you know, I, this is a bit technical, but I, I used to have a problem with runouts. Uh, they're very difficult to commentate runouts. Agree. Don't you think? You know, yeah, I agree, yeah. You're like, you don't know what you're looking at. Am I looking at the ball? Am I looking at the batsman? Am I looking at, because the batsman are kind of like, you know, and you're going, oh, there's a hesitation. And you're thinking, I've got to describe where they are. And Agus said something to me, really brilliant. He said, uh, just follow the ball. Just describe the ball's progress all the way because you'll be able to find ways of going back to describe the whole process of the run out afterwards. Just make sure the ball's gone out there, bowler's hand or whoever's hand, fielder's hand back to the stumps and then you can describe you can go back and it sort of transformed my way of doing runouts but the point of that story is to illustrate that these guys don't sit in silos waiting for you to fail they yeah. you know you, you talk about it like cricketers talk to each other you know we've seen him run Tahir in the IPL you know tutoring uh, was it Ravi Bishnoi I think showing it wasn't Ravi Bishnoi it was another leggy showing him how to play well commentators the generous ones, and we're very lucky to have a lot of generous ones on TMS, do the same thing. You sort of talk in the evening, uh, often about technicals, about how do you, like during this year with the pandemic, we had a lot of chats over, over wine, of course, uh, about how you compensate for the lack of a crowd, you know, and how self-conscious you feel when you go up big. I had to do Stuart Broad's 500 wicket. How can you go, and there it is, it's 500. There's no noise in the crowd yeah. at all. It sounds really weird. So. Well, we've done a lot of Sheffield Shield commentary, the two of us, so we're, uh, yeah. we're well used to commentating without a crowd and not feeling <laughs> self-conscious. I mean, last summer I was screaming and I realised the players could hear me because there was no one there, so I had to tone it down. Well, you've had some brilliant games just recently. I saw yeah. uh, New South Wales winning by one wicket. That's right. Lukoski and, um, and Harris game. put on... 500 almost. Oh, where's Agar? What a bastard. He has to ruin. <laughs> we were just talking He's about your tweet hero. just He's before we hero. came on. He's met as his hero. Oh. You, you offended him greatly. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, once he got the 480, you've got to let him get a 500. Come on. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so in answer to your question, everybody was really uh, helpful. Even, you Except know, Boycott. Blood. No, now boy- Boycott ended up being helpful, but what Boycott is, is he's a different kind of fish. So, the first commentary stint I did with him, and I was actually really terrified of, of working with Jeffrey because, uh, because he's trenchant and he'd been there a long time and he's not necessarily known for his immediate displays of spontaneous <laughs> generosity. So, um, That's an understatement. It is a bit. So I had to meet him beforehand, um, which I hadn't done with. Uh, most, a lot of the commentators you meet for the very first time on air, you know, uh, like uh, Glenn McGrath, for example, met for the very first time on air. But with Jeffrey, you go and have like a kind of audience, you know. And I chose to sort of 
just drop into the conversation the number of runs and centuries he'd gotten that seemed to placate him a bit mm-hmm. and then um got on air with him and the 20 minutes i was on air with him he just looked at the side of my head he didn't look at the game he just stared at the side of my head sizing me up wow and i asked him a question at one point england had taken a wicket and alistair cook uh, lovely man though he is I, I disagreed with his captaincy on this occasion he'd just taken a wicket Pakistan were 80 odd for three and he had neither a third man nor a third slip and inevitably the ball flew down to the third boundary for four of the new batsman and this is something that really irritates me in cricket uh, because you have one or the other preferably a third slip when a new batsman comes in the ball's moving around you're in England yep, with a red jukes ball you know it's not it's not rocket science anyway I put this to Jeffrey. And he said, yes, next question. And I thought, okay, it's going to be like that, is it? <laughs> so I kind of took a deep breath and I thought, well, if you're not going to answer my questions, I'm just going to commentate. I just commentated the over and didn't, you know, didn't bother turning to him. <laughs> he just went, went all the way through to the end and then threw him an open-ended question that he'd struggled to say yes or no to. So he'd have to then respond. And over the course of the test match, he, uh, he started actually to stop looking at the side of my head and start to look at the cricket. <laughs> and over the course of the next year, he started to be more engaged. And then I realized that actually, this is just Jeffrey's way. Jeffrey is, Jeffrey is deeply professional. He's very, very uh, concerned that everything he works on is the best it can possibly be. So if some kind of scrofulous oik turns up that he's never heard of, because he wasn't going to listen to Test Matters over, no. but anything else, he'd be working most of the time he was on. So he didn't know me from Adam. He, what he did know is that I got no bloody runs and I'm taking no bloody wickets. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a complete non-entity. And so he was, I imagine, deeply suspicious about sharing a platform and being on this program with someone that he had no reason to rate. So I kind of had to prove myself to him in a different kind of way. And uh, our relationship really took off when I realized that Jeffrey has a habit of of saying what he thinks, but often what he can think is the same thing throughout the day. So England have been going through a period of continually losing wickets at the top of the order. And this drives him mad as a top order batsman because, you know, they're playing loose shots, rubbish shots, he does go on to the pavilion, nonsense. You know, you're head down, you leave that ball. He's outside off, he's always in the corridor, you know, we're playing at you. And uh, he would say this a lot. And I sensed that we weren't getting the best out of Jeffrey. So I tried a different tactic because I'm a kind of keen historian of the game. And I said, uh, oh, what England would really love to play like Morris Leyland, isn't it? Someone sticky in at number three, number four, you know, blunt that new ball. Suddenly his eyes lit up. He said, oh, Morris Leyland. <laughs> oh, you know you're cricky, Daniel. And then I realised that if I just throw in the names of Yorkshire cricketers <laughs> from 1910 to 1960. <laughs> you win him over. Yeah, and I knew a lot of them anyway because my, my grandfather was from Yorkshire, so he'd bored me rigid about how, you know, George Hurst was the greatest thing and Wilf Rhodes and God knows what else. So I knew all about him. And, uh, and then you get this wonderful stuff from Jeffrey because Jeffrey isn't just, you know, an ex-cricketer. He spent hours and hours talking to Herbert Sutcliffe and Herbert Sutcliffe batted with Jack Hobbs who played the start of his career at the same time as W.G. Grace. And before you know it, you've kind of gone through this whole 
you've gone all the way back to the dawn of cricketing time. So you've got this wonderful resource there. And then I realized, you know, I sort of berated myself that I hadn't used Jeffrey for all of his terrific assets, really, for the first year or so I was on commentary. But I think well, it doesn't help if he's not answering your questions. Well, no, it doesn't help. No, but you know, it's, but the, but I could see why. You know, I, the, the purpose of that is not really to bag Jeffrey. Um, Jeffrey is, is a unique man. I mean, there is no one like him, and Jeffrey lives in the moment. And you know, if Jeffrey's grumpy, Jeffrey's grumpy, and, and he will be grumpy if he's frivolous and and happy. He will be that. Whereas a lot of broadcasters they cover up how they actually feel to create the noise. I mean, I'm sure you guys do it. I do it. You know, you may feel a bit sort of rancid about something, but you're going to get through this 20 minutes with a sunny disposition and come mm. out the other side. So that's what exactly. we do. Jeffrey won't do that. Jeffrey will describe or, or everything that Jeffrey does will come out of the mood that Jeffrey's in at that moment. And that is fine i mean that's that is a unique quality and it, it means he's honest one thing i will, will say about jeffrey definitely he's one of the most honest commentators you will get he will not say stuff i mean this could get me in terrible trouble but you wouldn't put him on the ipl because he would tell it as he sees it <laughs> and, and a lot of a lot of cricket is moving towards an area of entertainment and this happens in, in, in all countries every tournament bbl we do it in the, well, in the Packer class. was big on this. Packer was always yeah. telling the commentators, talk the game up. Yeah, but Packer mightn't have wanted Danny Morrison, though. No. <laughs> Here in Sharjah. <laughs> the double uh, Ds. They're not the that double. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> They're not. <laughs> oh, yeah. You and I both. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what I mean is, you know, he, he's – he is an old school commentator, but in the in the best possible way. Actually, uh, he says it as it is. He doesn't sugar the pill, and um, and I think uh, we'll miss him. Actually, we'll, we'll miss some of those qualities because cricket commentators are in danger of 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 ignoring, not ignoring, but suppressing what they see right in front of them for fear that we don't want to bring the audience down. And there is always a balance to be struck. I think you don't want to be sitting there moaning all the time, but for the same token, if you're watching a poor quality game, then it's a poor quality game. It's and not every game is the most exciting thing you've ever seen in your entire life. It might be fun, but it's not necessarily the greatest thing that's ever happened. Mm, true. Just changing tack. Do you really think that England threw the last test of 36, 37? Uh, I, I know they did. Uh, yeah, I am convinced. Gubby Allen, the Quisling traitor. Um, <laughs> I, I think they, they threw the third and fourth tests as well uh, for that matter. <laughs> Being 2-0 up by, by accident. My favourite test match of all time, that third test match, with Bradman's 270 and his partnership with Fingledon, who they couldn't stand each other. I thought when you... Because I heard you say that, and I thought you were being tongue-in-cheek, but you really honestly mean it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I don't think England threw it. I'm, I'm pretty sure that Gubby Allen was made captain in 36-7 to go and do a softening-up job after Jardine in 32-3. Yeah. So the idea was to build bridges... You know, and uh, and to be jolly good chaps because we upset the the, the colonials terribly badly four years ago, and um, you know I, I I don't know precisely what the trade we were doing with Australia at the time would have been because you hadn't even bothered digging up the ground to discover well, we had, you were ridiculous. Do we have sheep and sheep, stuff? wool and beef and and then I think in a couple of years of later when when the war started, what we had was fat. We had the dripping that you would cut out of the roast and send that over to England because you had no oil to cook in the years after the war. So that was a, 
a very charming export that we had. <laughs> that's, that's very generous of you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, you didn't send us your physical trading instructor, Donald Bradman, to go and fight on the front line. But that's another matter. He was he was he was injured. He he's, he had fibrositis. He couldn't he couldn't. Yeah, he was so injured. He scored quite a lot of runs in forty six seven and nineteen forty eight, didn't he? But yeah, uh, his, his his recovery was remarkable, and uh, on all all power to him. Uh, well, there's no way if Bradman was English, you'd have sent him um, to fight against the Krauts. All right. Well, actually, that's a, that's a very good point because because Jack Hobbs did get away with not fighting in the First World War, so I'll give you that. Well, there we go. One last Touché. thing. Just last. Can I try? Uh, um, a John Arlott impression. It's, and then can you do yours? Cause it's, I've heard yours is very good. Um, I, I actually, I, I have heard it is good. Dennis Lilly shirt fluttering in the breeze. That's terrible. <laughs> now, 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 Dan, Paul's really nervous about this. Okay. I did it before. It was all right. Yeah, yeah, he's been practicing all afternoon. Now breathe. Do it. Imagine you got a bottle of red wine in front of you. The Australian fast bowler coming in now. That's a good ball. He's turned that down to leg nicely, and that's the quality of the batsman. See, that's not bad. That isn't bad. That isn't bad. It's the batsman. You need to get slightly more low, and you need to breathe after every four words because towards the end of his career, he struggled hugely with his lungs. But Stuart Broad, this glorious figure, of Aryan athleticism at the top of his mark, developed by Joseph Mengele in a Petri dish <laughs> in 1944, is running away to the hapless Travis head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I've got a lot to work on. Well, no, you, you, nearly, you, you nearly had it. You had a, what you had is you had a slightly young Arlet. Because um, ah. we did a, I don't know if you listened, but uh, uh, Adam Collins. One of the greatest. Yes, calling the shots was fantastic. Oh, thank you. He's he's he is one of the. I say he's one of the greatest living Australians. He, I don't know anybody who manages to cram twenty eight hours work into each day. It's <laughs> it's kind of spooky, but um, we we spent ages uh, dissecting commentary for that documentary, and I I had not realised how John Arlott's voice in nineteen forty eight is about four tones higher than it is by the end of his career. He's like, really, it's, it's not high-pitched, but it's quite higher-pitched. But I guess, really, if you want to do a proper John Arlott impersonation, because a lot of it is about brevity, <laughs> you'll, you'll just go, Lily. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be it. <laughs> 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 because if, you, if you listen to his commentary on Don Bradman getting out, although there is yeah. the, the lovely line, I wonder if you see anything properly when you come out to bat for the last time. Um, he does. He puts in a, a couple of nice lines, but Jonathan Agnew and I have talked about this quite a lot. You could never get away with the silence he does. because bold him! And then there's nothing but the sound of the crowd for the best part of, I think it's about 48 seconds we timed it at. Wow. Now, I must have heard the edited version because then it's normally Bradman, bold Hollis. That's right. You would have done. Yeah. You would have heard the edited version because quite rightly, most people think it was a massive dereliction of his commentary duty to stay entirely silent while the greatest batsman of all time finished his career. Because ordinarily you would then frame that, wouldn't you? Say, I walk back for the final time. The man who's changed, not just cricket, but Australia. It's 
taken this ramshackle heap of Ruritanial useless sheep farmers and turned them into something that approximates to a real country. <laughs> Him and that <laughs> horse farlap. <laughs> <laughs> we should dub a bit that and put that with the actual Bradman dismissal and see if we can change the record. <laughs> That's a project for you on Headliner um, this week. Well, Dan, we're running out of time. Um, I've got one question before we let you go. Uh, one of my great joys um, is when the English tours tours here for the Ashes, you know, you come to the SCG test and you go into the media centre and there is all these broken, depressed English cricket journalists that have just seen their side humiliated again down under. And, uh, I mean, you seem to hold it together pretty well in 1718. You were pretty high-spirited compared to the rest of the lot that were, you know, looked terrible by the end. Looking ahead to the next Ashes, what, 21, 22, do you think it's going to get any better for your English colleagues in the press box and the English cricket team? Because I can see another four or five nil drubbing again, you know, humiliation Mm -hmm. for the English tourists. You can see a lot of depressed cricket journalists going back to England with their tails between their legs. Uh, What do you think is going to happen? Well, firstly, uh, yeah, I don't consider it humiliation to be able to get to wander around Australia because contrary to all the things that I may sound like, I love Australia and, uh, <laughs> and I love Australians. I mean, my grandfather fought at Gallipoli uh, with, the, with the Anzacs uh, and shot himself in the arm, actually, when he went over the top in the fifth wave. He was, I wouldn't be here without his cowardice. So you're criticising Bradman and yet your grandfather yeah. like shot himself yeah. so he didn't charge <laughs> the enemy. No, I'm, I'm not criticising Bradman. I think cowardice is an absolutely essential uh, quality in order to have a long and healthy life. And, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be here today if my grandfather hadn't like seen the piles of dead bodies and thought, fuck this for a game. Sod it. Quite literally. <laughs> and turned the revolver on his left shoulder and ended up in a military hospital and got home to impress my grandmother and then my father and then so forth well we get the way it works that works yeah you, you get you get you get the idea yeah 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 so no i i i don't consider it humiliation I, I i love it i mean it's just it's the most magical tour you can do which is why i was upbeat because you get to visit um pretty much every major city in australia uh you get to spend an english winter somewhere that's Largely speaking, warm, although you had a pretty shitty summer that 1718. I, I got rained on in every single place I went, including <laughs> Perth. But it was, it was a, you know, it's just wonderful to go around and, and see so many people and to be able to talk to the likes of, you know, Ian Chappell. I mean, spending an evening with Ian Chappell is just so entertaining. I mean, you, you, you never, yeah, it's, it's thrilling. On the pitch, uh, England are going to struggle because every team struggles in Australia. Every team struggles away from home, to be honest. But Australia, I think, have nailed it better than anywhere else. The, the pitches suit them down to the ground. Your, your bowlers are ridiculous-looking people. I mean, I love Mark Wood. You put him next to Josh Hazelwood. Josh Hazelwood <laughs> is the, one of the most terrifying human beings. He doesn't look like it on TV, but you stand next to him. He's like, he's like six foot six all round, you know? Yeah. I, I was out at Old Trafford for the test match, the, the, the one that you retain the ashes by winning and I was doing the pre uh, day chats and interviews and Mitchell um, yeah Mitchell Stark and Josh Hayeswood were bowling on a pitch like three pitches away from the actual one and Stark I mean I know this sounds crazy and don't put this to him because he'll just knock my head off but I sort of thought 
I might be able to play you. He was kind of skiddy. It, the ball got up to a roundabout rib height. I thought, you know, with enough body armor, I might be able to get a bit of an inside edge on that. Was that your Piers Morgan moment, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not going to see it through. Don't get me wrong. But Hazelwood was bowling about a yard and a half fuller. And the ball was coming up around about like collarbone height. And I thought, how the hell do you yeah. play this? I mean, and then you put him on an Aussie pitch. He's got, he's got stamina. He's got strength. You play with this wretched ball that does nothing. <laughs> so it kind of encourages brutalism. You know, where the, the English bowlers are artists with delicate fingers. They're like the, the Michelangelos. Um, you're the kind of brutalist architects of the 20th century with these gigantic men. Now, uh, I, I think there's, there's a structural problem for England going to Australia at all times because I don't think they've got the firepower to, to handle that. Uh, Joffre Archer is a terrific bowler um, and will make a kind of a difference, but he can't do it on his own. Uh, Mark Wood is kind of breakable. Uh, our fast bowlers tend to be a little bit more flimsy physically. Our batsmen just haven't quite, you know, in 2010-11, England had probably its best batting lineup since the 30s, mm. possibly the 50s. You know, these were all-time greats for England. Cook, Strauss, Trot. Bell, Peterson, Trot, yeah. Prior at number seven. I mean, that was a top seven that, that ranked with anything England's put out there. Now, England have got a couple of brilliant emerging batsmen. Ollie Pope, I think you will find, will be a kind of even better version of Ian Bell. He's a magnificent batsman and, he, and he's a great learner. They, they've, got, they've got Joe Root. They've got a little bit. I mean, Zach Crawley looks like he, he could be quite the deal, but he's very young. So when they go over to Australia, if you don't go there as a settled side that knows what it's doing, like England did in 2010-11, then you're always going to struggle. So I would expect Australia to win. I think England will expect Australia to win. They might, they might produce the odd surprise here and there. They might have like a, you know, I think Jimmy Anderson desperately wants to play. And in the day-night game, if we actually get, get the conditions right and get the toss right, then that could be a, a source of interest. Uh, Melbourne will continue to produce the worst pitch in test cricket. So we might be able to get, out, get away with a draw. I mean, it's one of the greatest cities in the world with the worst pitch. I'd... They're improving it. They are improving it. That, that one was particularly bad. Yeah. Oh, it had to be improved. Geez. That was the worst ever. Even Cook scored runs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, also, you won't have James Vince just hitting the ball to second slip every time. Uh, so so you, you can't rely on that wicket. <laughs> All line to Mo and Ali, so... That's all lion to Murray Nally, exactly. So I think, I, I think it'll be a bit more competitive, but I expect Australia to win. So 4 nil rather than 5 nil. <laughs> I think 3-1. Okay. I like that optimism. That's very optimistic for a palm. Oh, for me, that's, that's enormous. But, you know, I, I do, but I do, just back to your other point about journalists, I do get a little bit annoyed with them. So do I. When, they, well, when, when they're not, you know, when they're grumbling. They bring that English misery from the tube and they just dispense it in the media centre at the Sydney Cricket Ground. I, I find it, I would be annoyed if I were you. I mean, I'm annoyed and I'm me. And because I look at these guys, I think, do you have any idea what kind of a life you've got here? You're, you are being paid to go from hotel to hotel, city to city, sitting, watching cricket. I mean, it's not the hardest thing in the world bashing out 1,000 words at the end of the day, especially when... 250 of them come out of the mouths of a cricketer in a quotes piece. I mean, it's not, ex- not exactly rocket science. You're, you're getting 
11 weeks away from one of the most English winters are the most miserable in the world because they're not even pretty. You know, they're just gray and wet and quite cold. They're not like Swedish snowy. You're getting all these advantages. You're in this wonderful country surrounded by these wonderful people doing the thing you love. So I don't have any sympathy with anybody who doesn't enjoy it. Uh, even when you're losing five mil, I, it can get a bit irritating when you've got a stomach, a Cameron Bancroft, Steve Smith press conference at Brisbane. But, <laughs> you know, you then just go and find yourself a dosa, a designated outdoor smoking area. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you also uh, make sure that you're carrying your passport with you so you're allowed by the crazy draconian rules of the nanny state Australians to have a drink after 10 o'clock. And once you've, like, armed yourself with how to cross a road legally, <laughs> then, uh, then basically it's one of the greatest countries in the world. We love following rules. We sure do. Was, Man, it you, was it you or Agus that got the ticket? Was it Adelaide? It was Agus, it was Agus at Adelaide, yeah. It was hilarious. It's a, just, just to be clear, it was at 1.30 in the morning crossing a completely empty road. Well, <laughs> I have to say I agree with the police officer in this case. <laughs> See, that's what we're up against. <laughs> one thing I've got to add, yeah, just, last one. man, is... You've obviously, because you don't catch the train. For, for someone from, from Sydney who's caught the train all my life, the London tube is the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> Our train system is ghastly. I can't say how... I'm not talking about the quality of the transfer. I'm talking about the, the attitude of its uh, users. I dream of the tube. <laughs> well, so do I, I, haven't used the, I haven't used the tube since the 20th of March. Well, it's one good thing about COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Dan, look... Thank you so much for joining us on Cricket Unfiltered. Any last questions, Paul, before we let Dan get on with his day? No, thanks very much. And thanks for being so generous with your time. Great to talk to you. Oh, it's a total joy. And uh, quite genuinely, I do love you guys and everything you're doing out there. Uh, enjoy your summer. You will have a great one. Yeah. Um, I, think, I, do, I think you're going to beat India quite comfortably. Yeah. I think I so. mean, even though they're a brilliant side, because I think that there is a kind of imbalance for anybody who goes to Australia. But look, you're going to get to watch Test cricket. You're about to have the best four months of your lives while we have the worst four months of our lives. So just spare a tiny, tiny thought for us. Yeah, well, we were, and we're, quite genuinely, I've loved your work for years. I think you were, I mean, you were going on podcasts like Geek and Friends like almost 10 years ago when I first heard you. So um, it's great to finally have you on the show. I really admire your work and hopefully we'll maybe see you out here for the Ashes the year after next. Oh, that's the plan. If Australians will let us in. Where, yeah. Is it November? Is it November that, that Morrison said that he, he might let... The international board is 2025 at this stage. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I do, I'd love to come and see you both. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. We're almost at the end. Great stuff with Dan Norcross. Paul, what's your can't let it go for this week? Well, as the American election has drawn closer, I have become more and more obsessed with Nate Silver, who is the sort of leading pollster and pundit over there. Uh, I just love the way that he talks about it all. He's so intelligent. There's 50 states. They've got 50 different sets of rules. Uh, it's, it's just like a sporting event, although it is for probably one of the most important moments in the history of the, hum, of the human race, but <laughs> leaving that as one, to one side. And I just happened to see that Nate Silver has combined – it's a tweet from a little while ago, but he's combined – Cricket and baseball in the one tweet, which I think I, I'm reading it out because I know, Ben, as you love baseball. I love it as well, although no, mm. not, not as much as you. But clearly there has been um, an extra inning game a couple of years ago. Someone has probably cracked one that's a home run, but it's just gone foul. And some uh, guy on Twitter has said, that should count. And Nate Silver's replied, 
Instead of putting a runner on second to expedite the resolution of extra innings, gradually expand the amount of, the amount of fair, fair territory until all 360 degrees are in play and baseball becomes cricket. The reason I love that is, one, he's being funny. None of the people replying to that got that. They're all saying, oh, that's terrible, cricket, the baseball <laughs> than the last five days. Like, he's just joking. But two, the fact that he even mentioned cricket, that he's become such a celebrity in my eyes in the last few days, it just made me all warm and fuzzy and happy. So there you go. <laughs> Who's your tip for the election? Just joking. All right, now. Biden. Joe Biden. (laughs) Hello, Justin. Uh, My can't let it go for today is, well, the IPL, and we haven't really gone into it because as we're recording this, it's coming to the sort of right at the end of the group stage, but it is really tightened up in the last couple of weeks. It looked like teams are going to pull away, and they didn't, so it's going to come down to net run rate. It's been truly fascinating stuff. Um, Overnight, Smith was out to Cummins again. So Smith is Cummins' bunny. Unbelievable. Um, But my thing is, my can't let it go is the amount of players that have been dropped. Uh, My can't let it go is the amount of Australian players that have been dropped in the last week. Finch, Maxwell, Watson all dropped from their teams. And um, actually, Finch was replaced by Joss Philippi uh, in the RCB batting lineup. So Philippi's batting with Coley and AB de Villiers. What a great education that is. But yeah, what I can't let go of is uh, the Australian stars have tanked this year's IPL. And I think it shows probably my mindset still that I'm probably a few years behind. As much as I respect the IPL and I try to watch it, I still think, oh, well, I don't care how they go over there. I want to wait till the stuff that really matters. I'm probably out of step with the rest of the world. The rest of the world are looking at it and saying, these guys haven't succeeded in the only tournament that sort of really matters. So, yeah, um, showing my age probably. I'm a bit like you. I don't – I mean, I care about the competition, but it, it's more important to me than national performances. But I worry then that some of these players are actually having a bit of a form slump and how they're going to uh, perform against India when they get back here. I try not to be ever superstitious, but I'm going to say something that sounds superstitious, so please uh, excuse me, but I kind of almost want them to fail over there so that they have their good form uh, here. I don't want them to waste good form over there, which I know is a, compl- think- <laughs> a completely idiotic thing to say, but there I've said it. That's so strange because it's not like good form is finite. I know. They've got a, you know this amount of runs in their bags and, oh, I've used them all. I know. Only an idiot would say that, but, uh, yeah, well, it's it. out there. You know. What um, can I, I say? I'm going to contradict myself now. Well, he said it. <laughs> well, that is it for this edition of Cricket Unfiltered. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back next week with another show. 